Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be here today. Not everybody can be here, but uh, we view this as a blessing to, to be together and to talk about this subject. Uh, each of the ministries represented here in this room today, through the individuals who are here, uh, they're, they're seeking to serve you and to bring people to the kingdom. And we ask that uh, you would bless our conversation today, that you would give me strength and energy and the wisdom to know how to, to present and to uh, give the type of answers that are needed to make this truly a productive conversation. Thank you for hearing and answering our prayers today. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, let's, let's talk about a couple things before we get going, because they're, they're kind of foundational to the discussion. And somebody uh, asked if this is some of the same stuff that, I, that they heard two years ago, and some of it's the same, but some of it's new. But I want to share something to you that I learned from the very first book that I uh, read on fundraising. It's a, a book written by Cy Seymour. It's called Designs for Fundraising. It's probably the very first book, in-depth book, written on fundraising in the United States. And uh, it's a great book. But Cy Seymour was kind of the father of, of philanthropy in the United States and in a lot of ways in terms of modern philanthropy and fundraising. And one of the things that Cy Seymour talks about is how do you look at your universe of donors? Uh, and, and what I wanted to share with you is these three numbers, and I'd like you to, to remember them for the context of this conversation. And that is, I don't know if you can read this from all parts of the room, but there's a 70, 23, and 7. And I put those numbers up, they add up to 100. But what I want you to remember is that 70% of your donors give out a habit. Okay? They're, they're just the way that they're wired. I would say maybe Seventh-day Adventist, that number tends to be a little bit higher because we grow up in such an institutional tithing and uh, church attendance, and we're, we do things habitually just because we're Seventh-day Adventist. 23% of donors in the United States and... Uh, you know, around the world in general, they're emotional givers. They don't give all the time, but they uh, will give when they're called upon to give and if it emotionally tugs at their hearts. So 70 and 23. What would you guess the other 7%? What kind of givers are those? Impulse, no. No. It's, it tends to be visionary, but the word that I was looking specifically, we won't go on forever looking, it's uh, strategic. And it happens to be that most of the money that we're raising is going to happen to come from that 7%. People who are strategic donors. Um, it's not that they're not regular givers, and it's not that they're not emotional either, but they tend to, to fall in this category of being a strategic donor because they want to see some real impact with their dollars. They tend to be high net worth. They tend to um, want to see plans. They tend to be either businessmen or women. And they, they want to know what your plan is, and they want to see some big, hairy, audacious goals. They tend to be very visionary. And so 
you know, these are the these are where the people are who the people are out there, and that's where you need to kind of look. And when you think about what you're doing for fundraising, um, think about what you're doing to reach these different groups. Um, and I would say most of us tend to work with the um, the people who are giving out a habit. And where we're messing up right now is we tend to not ever touch that 7% who are more strategic donors, and that's where ha most of the gifts happen to be. Any questions? Most of the major gifts and planned gifts come from people who are doing strategic giving. So let's talk about why are some organizations strong when others reduce services and close their doors. Why, why do you think that is? Why do some nonprofits tend to fly real high and others, you know, are always on the cusp of closing? Financial? Yeah. Poor business planning? Yeah, uh, donations tend to have an impact on it as well because in nonprofit organizations, the donations can make up the difference between what your mission and and your vision is and where you want to go as an organization because um, I've been working with some private schools lately and it's, it's really interesting that most private schools are designed to lose money. Uh, they sell their tuition at a rate that doesn't pay for all their expenses. And so it automatically throws them into a situation where they're having to raise scholarship dollars or raise money for capital needs. They, they never charge what it costs to uh, educate the children. So one of, the, one of the reasons I believe that there's such a huge problem is, is that the people tend to give to visionary organizations and we tend to be anything but visionary. We, we tend to think that uh, people are going to give to us because we have lots of needs. And the fact that you have needs with your nonprofit organization um, is not the biggest reason why people are going to give. And that's why you'll see people characterize, you know, what they're doing is that they desperately need your help or we're going to close our doors. And this is really flawed thinking because people are not going to give to you if you appear to be needy or if there's a a slight possibility that you might close your doors, then they're not going to give you their money because there's a lot of other organizations that are out there that are uh, fundraising and they're not talking about needs. They're talking about how they're succeeding and how they're fulfilling mission. And one of the things I would tell you that in all your language that you're talking out in the public or with your donors or in any groups or whatever, talk about what it is that you're doing well and what you're doing to make a difference in the world. And then if you want to have some private discussions with a, a particular donors about what the needs are of the organization, you always have to characterize those within the context of how those needs are a part of fulfilling the mission of the organization. They, those needs cannot stand alone. You have to marry the needs with the mission and the vision and too often, uh, we talk about how, how bad things are and how desperate we, we need to, to support. One of my alma maters sent me a letter one time and they wanted me to give to help rebuild the, the pool house at the, swimming, at the swimming complex. And uh, they actually were audacious enough to send a picture along with it of a hole in the roof. <laughs> so, 
you know, and, and it's not that we can't, mind you, it's not that we can't talk about what our needs are. In other words, they could send out a letter talking about how we're needing to do renovations in the, uh, the pool complex. But I'd be more inspired by seeing pictures of students taking classes in the swimming pool or students in general instead of a picture of a hole in the roof. The donors really don't care to see that the prior funds weren't managed correctly or that people weren't supporting the organization in the past and for that reason there's a hole in the roof. Are you, are you following me? So think about you know, what you're doing um, and, tr and try to be visionary. And remember this is a, a text that I found that I thought was appropriate to the subject and that is, is that where there is no vision, a people perish. And I had a couple others that were talking about vision uh, Henry David Thoreau said, I would give all the wealth of the world and all the deeds of all the heroes for one true vision. So if you're a, a leader in your organization, remember that as you approach donors and others in the community to talk about what your organization is doing, try to be very visionary in talking about what you're doing to make a difference. And then uh, Theodore Roosevelt said, far better is it to dare mighty things to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows no, not victory nor defeat. You know, our, our donors don't expect us to be perfect either. But if we're going to succeed, we have to have some lofty goals in mind and, and people will tend to give to things that tend to, to be more lofty than urbane. So what do the numbers say? What's happening with giving in the United States? Well, last year giving was up 4% uh, up to 298 billion. Uh, we've had a recession over the last few years, obviously you know that. The high of giving in the last few years was $307 billion. So it's, it's starting to go back up. But if you would look at, at a chart on giving, you would see that over the last 40 years in the United States, Giving has basically uh, gone up every single year for the last 40 years until 2008. And then we had to drop because of that uh, time in the recession that we have. So, and it's going to come back up. But remember that, that the people who are the most wealthy in this country, even though they got hurt in the stock market, their money is generally is back right where it was before. The stock market's back up and they, they're doing fine. Uh, most given or, gifts are given to religion, about 32%. That includes your organizations, it includes churches. Most people, that's where they like to give. Education came in second with 13%. Any of those, any of those who are here with schools are, are really in a, in a wonderful position because people like to give to children and they love to give to religion and they love to give to education. And so you have the perfect scenario there when you're representing any type of a school. Um, international causes was up 8% plus increases in environmental and animal organizations. And you should know that individuals give 88% of all the gifts. Well, one of the questions I tend to get from people is, uh, the first question is, is that it, they say, I'm in, I wanna raise money and I wanna know how to get money from all the businesses in town. And uh, I've got very bad news for you. Um, have you ever heard of the term quid pro quo? 
Well, I will tell you that unless you have a personal relationship with the business owner, okay, so that's no longer a business gift. But unless you have that personal relationship and you're truly approaching a business, they tend to give all their gifts out of which budget? Advertising or marketing, right. And so a business owner is not in the business of giving away money. A business owner is in the business of making money, okay? So they don't, they don't give it away unless, that they, unless they see that it's going to benefit them. And they, and they don't mind giving them, you know, they're altruistic in many regards, but you know, you've got to know a businessman, the way he measures success in life happens to be how he runs his business and whether he makes a profit or not. And if he makes that profit, I mean, it feels good and, and they feel successful. And a lot of times it's really not even about the money. They don't care. They really don't care about the money in, in, in a lot of ways. I mean, it's a measurement device. But these people, their, their values are not based always on what that money is. How many of you have read uh, the book called The Millionaire Next Door? Okay, if you haven't read The Millionaire Next Door, you should read that. It's, a, it's basically a study on millionaires in the United States. And you can buy it on Amazon.com for a dollar or two. Really worth your read. For those who um, have not read the book, what would you guess the the car is that most millionaires drive? Ford F-150 pickup truck. And ever buy a watch worth more than 50 bucks? They may own one suit, maybe not. I, I just took a new job with, a, with a, a company about a month ago. It's called Thompson and Associates. And I, I went there in my, my blue suit for my interview. And the owner showed up in, sh in shorts. So, you know, business owners, remember, they're, they're there to make money. They don't care what they look like. They're not going to give you a gift unless there's something in it for them. Unless you have a personal relationship with them. I, I met with an Adventist school, and I'm not going to say which one, and they were trying their hardest to raise money. And they said, we put together a proposal, and we're raising you know, a million dollar capital campaign for our elementary school. And we've taken this proposal to 40 businesses in town and we haven't gotten one single gift. That should not be a surprise. The reason why is, is because businesses are going to give you a gift if you're doing business with them. Okay. And most of our Avenue schools are not very good at doing business with people. So, all right. So, the United States, generally speaking, if you're just a big picture, about 5% of all the money given away from our, is, comes from businesses. And that comes out of their marketing budget. So if you have lofty visions and goals about raising money from businesses, stop. And then the other, the other group that's left are foundations. And foundations tend to give somewhere around 7%. Their giving tends to go up and down depending on how the stock market is because by law they have to give away 5% of their proceeds off their investment earnings. And right now foundations are pledged out into the future and they're paying off those, those pledges. Plus I don't know how many of you have ever taken the time to look at foundations, but foundations tend to give very strategically to very 
targeted causes. And this organization, most of you in this room are not going to be eligible to get foundation grants. So individuals is where the, the money is. So focus your efforts on that. So a couple other things is that philanthropy is not a, a short-term solution to a crisis. It can be, uh, but it's, if you want philanthropy to work, if you want fundraising in your organization to be long-term, you don't put it into a context of a crisis, you put it into the context of a relationship. And, and most of us, you know, we're so focused in on what we're doing to fulfill the mission of our organization that we want our ministries to be successful, we forget that the people that we're working with, the only reason that they're going to give to you is if they feel like that they're a part of your mission and your ministry. But they're not going to feel that way unless you spend the time with them and build the relationship so that they feel like that they're part of it. So that if you have that relationship with them and they know you and they know your heart and they know what you're trying to accomplish and you go to them and ask for help in accomplishing the mission, you're going to be much more successful in getting them to give because they know you, they trust you, they like you, they, they believe in you, they believe in what the organization is doing. But if you don't build that relationship with people, it's not going to happen. You need to be systematic. So if you're going to start raising money, you better keep track of where that money is coming from and write down how much they gave and, and when they gave it and what they gave it for. And uh, remember that a program's uh, built on a, a pyramid of giving. Now I'm going to show you what that is See, I'll back up for just a second. In fundraising, I don't know, can you guys from this side of the room even read these numbers here? All right, in a pyramid of giving, and th this has not really changed much since the beginning of time. But this is the pyramid, and, and as you know, in all pyramid discussion, Everything's built from the top, bottom up, right? That's where the foundation of the pyramid is. So you have to have a strong foundation. And that's where your, this reference to systematic and long-term comes in if you have a good foundation. And the foundation comes in annual giving. And that's where you're soliciting your mass audiences for gift. That's where you identify the people who believe in your organization. So let me give you an illustration. You're here at ASI and you're collecting names. What is your plan to do with those names? Well, it should be to create a database and, in, and then send a letter out to those individuals or call them and ask them to be a part of your organization and see if they'll give to your organization. See if something's stuck. And if it doesn't, no big deal. Your job is not to to grieve over who does and who doesn't. It's just to give people the opportunity to give. So annual giving is about identifying who your people are and finding out where they live, what their phone number is, what their address is, what their email address is, finding out information about them and start to build the relationship and start communicating with people through the annual fund. Now, as some of you who are doing fundraising, a lot of you are doing it at, the, at this level only right now. You're not, and you're not seeing a lot of results. You're getting some money in, but you're not raising big dollars. And that's because this tends to be small size gifts. This is through direct mail. This is through events. This is through 
uh, phonathons, and phonathons still work. Uh, you can still pick up a phone and call somebody and ask them for a gift. But this is also where you send out newsletters and you ask people, you, you share people's stories of success. And this is where you also send your annual reports out. And what else? What else in annual giving? Yeah, reunions, uh, anything like that. So just, just think about annual giving. And so what happens next is, is that it's major gifts are next. And I'm just going to put an MG. But remember, everything kind of goes up. So out of annual giving, say you, say you solicit um, a, a hundred people. Say you solicit a hundred, just for, for numbers sake. If you solicit 100 people, you might get 10 of them to give. And if you got 10 people to give, you might get two of them to be major gift prospects. These people are likely to give a larger gift to make a bigger difference in your ministry. Okay? And this is, this is not um, statistically accurate, but the long-term goal is, is not just major gifts, but the bigger money tends to be in the planned gifts. Let me show you a chart that I put together for this presentation. This is how we acquire gifts is through annual giving. You can see that 70% of, um, of the donors happen to be from annual giving, 20% are in major gifts, and 10% are in planned giving. But here's how the money, this is where the money comes from, and that is, is that 10% of the money comes from annual giving, 30% comes from major gifts, and 60% comes from planned gifts. So can you see the problem that exists out there? We spend all of our time dabbling in annual giving. Let's see if I can get the laser to work. I don't, there it is. We, we spend all of our time on annual giving, and we do a little bit with major gifts at the 20%. But then we've only tapped into about 40% of all the money that's out there within our own database. Also, it tends to be a lot of strategic gifts right here in planned giving as well. So, this is some, some of how philanthropy works and how, how it's based. Questions? Anybody have a question? How do you find the strategic gifts? Well, how, pardon me? Strategic gifts tend to be uh, very large net worth, very large asset gifts. Um, tend, people tend to give those out of their estates. Uh, you, you brought up a good point that I, I forgot to mention, and that is, is that basically all the gifts that come in, this, in these categories are coming out of their annual income. You see what I'm talking about? These 40% of all these gifts, these annual gifts and the major gifts come out of their annual income. So they're planning these gifts. Whereas the gifts up here, the planned gifts, they come more strategically and they're larger and they have to liquidate assets to give those. It doesn't mean that they won't, but that's where the money comes from. Yeah, it, it can be, but, but not necessarily. Uh, nowadays, there's uh, some neat instruments that you can give a gift to that can just basically, you can give to nonprofits uh, 
you know, it's kind of, there's a term like a charitable lead trust. You can give the money to the nonprofit for 20 years, and at the end of 20 years, it can come back out on the other side and go back to your family. You wouldn't have to pay very, very little of no taxes at all on that money. So if you lived another 20 years, but, you know, you were talking about people who have high net worth of, you know, they could be 5 million, 10 million, 20, 50, 100 billionaires, those type of people. And you probably have some in your databases, you just don't know it. Uh, there's a hand in here someplace here. Well, you know where, do you know where these planned gifts typically come from, though, are people who are giving at the annual giving level, and these are little old ladies who are giving you $100 a year. That's all you're going to get out of them, too. Because they... They, they could have $10 million in the bank and they could have a, a fear that they're not going to make it, their money's not going to make it to the end. So the most that they're going to give is going to be that 100 bucks. So that's where a complete program comes in, into bearing that if you've got to make sure that when you're, you're going out and you're doing this type of work that you're you're trained and you're prepared enough to work at all the different levels because some levels are you're not going to touch with the same people. I mean, a lot of people, you know, let's just face it. There's a lot of people out there who just want to support our ministries because they love us and they don't have a lot of money and they want to give us $25 or $50 a year and they're, get, they're getting a huge blessing and it's making a difference in your organization. These are the widow's might type people. And their gifts are just as important as those large gifts. They don't have the same impact, but they're just as important. So there's nothing wrong with soliciting all these small gifts. But mind you, if you have a little old lady who's been given to your organization $100 a year for 10 years, guess what? She likes what you do. And she's probably really a great person to talk to about an estate gift. So... That's, and I don't know if, if, it's, if, it, if I'm communicating well enough, for, if it's clicking with you, but that's why this annual giving program is so important to send out newsletters, to communicate, to ask regularly, because as you do that, you're getting people to reaffirm their commitment and interest in doing what you're doing, and you are continuing to share messages about how your organization is making a difference. But if you're not doing this annual giving thing right, then you're missing out on all the opportunities for the major gifts and for the planned gifts. You're, you're just living helter-skelter and hoping that the money will come in. But could you hear his question? He, how do you establish a relationship with a person who's a major donor and you want them to know that it's uh, long-term, they don't want it to, it's not superficial, but sometimes major donors feel like it's su superficial. Well, first of all, it's, an it's partially a, an integrity question and in, in how good you are at building relationships and if you're asking too, too soon. But I've also seen donors who are like, how come you are not asking me? So some of it is, is a sensitivity to timing issues and, and do, being a very good listener. So that if you, most major donors self-select, they, they self-select interest in your organization. So um, as a pastor, 
you're not supposed to know exactly who you're not supposed to know who's giving what money in the church, but you kind of have an idea. But, you know, what I would say is to any of you, whether you're a pastor or not, is, is go down and sit next to your your major donor prospects and, and start listening. Share them, share with them what some of your dreams and visions are for your congregation or your ministry. And then just shut up. And listen to them for a while and talk to them about, listen to them and find out how they get fulfillment and, and how God's speaking to their heart. And then see where you can meet their needs to give to, and to meet your needs to promote the ministry through what you're doing. And it could be that you're not doing anything that they're interested in. And you might have to just say, God bless you and I'll support you as you give to this other ministry. And your job is to continue the relationship like the conversation never happened. And, you know, sometimes people will be turned around and other times people will just tend to give what they were doing. So, it, you know, our job in this is, is more ministerial than you would expect. And that is, is that, you know, you're you're talking to people about a very sensitive issue. And that is, is their money. They're not they're not a topic and very much more sensitive than money. And so people are looking for you to be very genuine in your relationships. And it better be the, the same before as it is after the discussions. There's about 10 or 15 major instruments that donors can use for planned gifts right now. But uh, annuities are one of the leading ways that people give. And, and anybody need an ex explanation of the annuities? Oh, my goodness. That means I've got to move on to the next slide pretty soon. Anyways, um, annuities are very simply, uh, the donors give a large amount of money to the nonprofit. It's put into a trust. The donors receive a regular payment from that money put into trust. So that's what a lot of plan giving is nowadays, but there's a lot of other instruments that are out there that people are using. You have to have someone else administrate them, but uh, you have to have your 501c3 if you expect them to be able to, to take advantage. There's other kinds of nonprofits too, but the, the most common nonprofit in the U.S. is a 501c3. It's about 1.8 million of those they estimate. So let me, let me talk about, we were supposed to talk also about um, where you're going to find money. Well, those of you who are needing money for your ministry, I would say start with your board. And um, I think you have to think about who is on your board and what kind of leadership they're bringing to your organization. Um, in most nonprofit organizations, the first gifts always come from the board. They tend to set the pace. So if you have a problem with giving in your organization, it's probably because you don't have a good board. And I can say that because I don't know very many of you. <laughs> but, um, you know, most of us uh, staff our boards with very well-intentioned people who, who want to help. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the person that it's most important to have well intentions and, and knows how to do the, do the organization and lead the organization happens to be you. And you don't need 10 more of you on your board. What you need people on your board is, is people who can bring these three things to your organization, work, wealth, and wisdom.
Okay. So I, I got to be careful how I characterize some of this in this particular audience because um, it's a sensitive subject as well. Um, I've been a, a board chair of an, of an Adventist school and had to work with nominating committees before. And I will tell you that if you get the right group of people on your board and they know their role, that organization can get almost anything done. But if you don't have the right people on the, on the board or they don't know what their role is, sometimes I've seen the right people on the board, but they don't know what their job is. Um, but if you have people on your board who you've qualified because they're going to work hard, they're going to bring some wealth to the organization, and they're going to uh, bring some wisdom. So the best board that I ever worked on when I was chairing a board happened to be one where we were able to work with a nominating committee and make suggestions to the nominating committee, and they actually took the suggestions. So at one point we had uh, a gentleman who owned his own business and he was a CPA and we had another person who was high up in the insurance industry and we had another uh, couple business owners and every one of those people were so busy that they would show up our board meetings and they were so busy that they didn't want to spend their time running the school. I promised them we'd be done with our board meetings in an hour. And we did that for nine years. Our longest board meeting was three hours. We did that once. Typically, our meetings lasted an hour to an hour and 15 minutes. But you want to have people on there who are incredibly busy. They don't want to run your organization. They want to see it successful. And they know from the get-go that they're, what they're there for. You have a job description before they join. If you don't have a good job description, go to Google. Nonprofit board job description. and You're going to get 100,000 100, of them. I just recruited a board for a hospital. And um, in the job description, it says that we expect you to give, and this organization is a priority in your giving every year. And that was said to them in our conversation. They only had five points in the, in the job description, but that was one of the bullet points. Guess how many people turned us down? Zero. People just want to know what the deal is. And if they say no, maybe they don't believe in your organization and you didn't want them. Maybe you thought you needed them, but you don't. If you don't have giving starting at the board level, it's going to ripple throughout your organization. Okay? So if you're thinking about how can I raise more money with my organization, think about your board and think about who your board members are. And you know, the real tough thing is I don't have any easy solutions about boards except that, you know, come up with terms so that people don't stay on your board forever. You know, it could take you five years to, to turn your board into an average board to a great board. You, you know, relationships are everything and you don't want to just go around kicking people off of your board. But on the other hand, you've got to have some very high standards and expectations because if you don't, you're not going to get anything out of that board. In fact, they're going to run you ragged. They're going to send you in all sorts of different directions. Well, uh, he, said, he said, how do you uh, use the effect of the board giving to create a culture when those gifts are anonymous? Well, first of all, I don't think anything is truly anonymous. Secondly, um, 
uh, you know, pe people talk in, in general. But I always, as a fundraiser and as a nonprofit leader, I always leverage the board support in approaching people. In other words, I would say, listen, I'm here today to talk to you about this, and I want you to know that I, gave, I wrote the first check for this. And my staff, they're all giving. And we've asked our board to support it. And we have 100% of our board participating in this project. And we're here to ask you to give today because we know that you can play a leadership role in what we're trying to accomplish. So that's one way I would do it. But secondly is, is that that's a standard for the community that you're working with when those people on the, in the community know that the board is giving. And you cannot, you, you should never, I mean, there, there is such thing as anonymous giving, but most people don't mind their name being listed. You just never attach dollar amounts. And if someone doesn't want their name listed, then you have to respect that and don't list their name. But on the other hand, um, it's nice to put out those lists of who supported your organizations because it gives them some recognition for their support. And it also helps to inspire other people to give. So uh, that's what I would say to that. Any other questions about boards before I go? Yeah, Julio does some fundraising and some fundraising consulting. And you know, the, these, um, you can go to whole presentations on building boards. Some great books out there on how to build a nonprofit board. But you really want to be strategic when who, how you build your board in terms of getting different segments of the population to be on your board, uh, age-wise, um, occupationally. Um, men and women equally, uh, different races. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be an all black board or an all white board. It should have, uh, it should be a very beautiful color board. It should have some color on that board. And if it doesn't, then you're not really truly tapping into all the different perspectives that might be out there on, on your organization and how you're going to grow. You cannot afford to get everybody on your board to have the same thinking. What you want to have on your board is people who disagree in a healthy way about how to get there, but you want to have visionary people. You know, and I get a little bit of criticism for telling you that you should, you know, get people on your board who are wealthy. And I don't think wealthy people are any better than people who are poor. But wealthy people have something going for them that the poor people don't. And that is, is that they know how to make wealth. And they know how to have good business practices. And they know how to be tough. And they know how to read financial statements. So I'm not trying to say that wealthy people are all that. And that poor people aren't. And I don't want to make it sound like I'm discriminating. But you want to get the best people on your board to give the leadership that you need. And regardless of who's on your board, you better require 100% of your board to give to your organization. Otherwise, it hurts you in your efforts. We had a capital campaign at our school one time, and the last person was a, a mother who was single, and she had two kids in the school, and she was the last person who uh, hadn't given. And I, I, it was my job as the board chair to go solicit her. And she goes, well, I've got two kids in school. I'm a single mom, and I can't afford to give a gift. And I said, well, you voted it. And you knew from the start that everybody had to give as a board member. <laughs> so she begrudgingly wrote us a check for $25. And I, and I felt a little guilty uh, doing all that. But then a month later, she bought a new car. So, you know, quit 
quit coming at people from such a weak position. You know, either your organization stands for something and gets something done and your board members have to stand for that too, or they shouldn't be board members. If they're not, if they're not willing to support your organization with a check, then they're really not supporting your organization. And quit, quit this thing about they show up. You know, a lot of people show up and they, and unemployment lines and then for food stamps too. And, you know, we all have some money and everybody on the board should be giving. Well, most board members, um, most nonprofit organizations purchase liability insurance for their board members. So I would look into that. Um, I don't know if there's any attorneys in the rooms, but that's the only answer I have to that right now. And uh, I know that when I was a board member for a Seventh-day Adventist organization and for a few other professional organizations, we always had board insurance. So I would look into that. So, so it's a good question. All right, let's move on. And I, I think I've been talking about this already, but uh, how do you get your board involved, inspire them, encourage 100% giving? Um, it, you as the uh, director of the organization are not as good a position to encourage 100% board participation as somebody who is not employed by the organization. So get a fellow board member who understands this concept to champion 100% board giving. So your board chair. Um, you can have a board retreat. There's a lot of nonprofit professionals in your communities that you can borrow their expertise, have them come in and present to your board or hire a consultant to do a retreat with your board. Um, ask them to give and then give them some things to do in your organizations. I love this quote by uh, Hank Rosso, and, and he wrote another great book on uh, fundraising called Achieving Excellence. Uh, he wrote, uh, people who have the fire of leadership burning within their souls and have that deep commitment to the organization's mission will drive any program through to success. You get the right people on, on your board, it's going to happen. Because they're going to put their money in it, and then they're going to go get their friends to give money to it. All right, annual giving. Three main purposes of annual giving. Donor acquisition, donor renewal, and donor upgrades. It's the start of the relationship. Now, I touched on this earlier, but this is the real purpose of your annual giving program. Acquisition, renewal, and upgrades. What is missing from that, that list? No. Um, if you look at these three things, the three main purposes are donor acquisition, donor renewal, and donor upgrades. No, it, it happens to be the money. <laughs> now, in our organizations, we, the annual giving can have an impact because you can raise some money. I had an academy principal pull me aside down in the exhibit hall and say they raised $300,000 this last year for annual giving. That has impact. I'm not saying it doesn't. But if you look at not large nonprofit organizations that are out there, say like American Cancer Society, they'll spend you know $100,000 on a mailing for LA. And what, what are they trying to get out of that? They're not going to cover their expenses at all. They lose money on those mailings. What they're planning on doing is getting people acquiring a donor, and then next year they're going to renew them and then they're hoping to upgrade them as the years go by, and then they're going to start finding major gifts and planned gifts out of those people. 
you got to understand how this works is, is if you're going to do a good annual giving program, you're trying to acquire donors, you're trying to renew them, and you're trying to upgrade them every year. And it's how you start a relationship. So start with the people who are closest to the home, first of all. If you're going to raise money with your organization, you do that through your volunteers. That means your board and your committee members. And remember, anybody who volunteers for your organization is very likely to give a gift as well. Just give them an opportunity. Ask them if they'll give. Uh, staff. You should always have uh, your staff giving. If you're not writing the first check as the leader of your organization, you're failing your organization. You're failing to set an example. Write a check. Working for the organization does not count. Uh, clients, patients, church members, vendors, the community at large. So, you know, in the vendors, that, that is business owners. So you've got to keep everybody in mind. But if you're doing business with somebody, it's fair game to go back to ask them for a gift back to your organization. Maury, what are you thinking? I think you're doing a good job. Thank you. <laughs> All right, annual giving, systematic cultivation of annual gifts, provides dollars for short-term needs. It starts the giving and accountability process. Specify goals and identify projects, and uh, it's organization-wide, it's a coordinated effort. So, again, annual giving, very important. Here's the methods through direct mail, phonathons, personal solicitation, thankathons, special events, newsletters, family campaigns, grant writing, employer matching gift programs. What are family campaigns? Uh, an example of a family campaign might be that if you uh, took a group of people on a mission trip and there was 50 people involved in that mission trip, you could have a future campaign, a miniature campaign around that group of people based on their identification as part of that particular family of people who went on that trip. Another, another example might be all those people who took choir classes from Mrs. Smith at the Academy. Um, you have to start thinking uh, creativity, uh, creatively about who your family groups are because you can start building more support for your organization around those family campaigns. So you have to, have to think about that. Uh, so, some, some of you can do some grant writing and some of you can do employer matching gift programs and that's if you're a little bit more progressive in fundraising. Um, the, phone, the phone you can still use, and a lot of times you can use it for free. I still believe in phonathons. They still work. People are still calling people. Um, it's more personal and cost-effective than mail solicitation. And uh, it's pretty easy to throw away a, a, a letter. And nowadays, people are not answering the phone. I know that because I don't answer it if it doesn't come up on my phone as somebody I know. But there's a lot of people who answer the phone still, and those phone programs work, and you do those just to acquire and renew and upgrade donors. I was working with the University of Texas for a while. Um, I worked for them for a little over two years. And at the University of Texas, they do all their acquisition of donors through the phone, but they do most of their renewals through direct mail and through the Internet. And they, they solicit 400,000 people every year by phone. 
So it, it works, but you, you have to work it. I mean, you have to get in there and do it. And you have to find out what works for your organization. What works for the University of Texas may not work for your organization. But I really believe in calling people. And I would do it if I were you. Um, you can do it through volunteers, or you can pay somebody to do your phone work. If you have a large, very, very large database, you can hire organizations to make calls that can do a very professional job. I know most of you would be scared to death to try that, but you actually would train their callers. And um, sometimes paid organizations will come in and train your callers, and you get some amazing results from that as well. All right, um, see your donors in person. And this happens to be a little talk about cultivation. And how do you cultivate a donor? The best way is to go over and see your donor and go, go talk to them in person. But if you can't do it, there's a few other ways. You can do it through phone calls. You can do it through letters. You can invite them to events. You can get them involved in tours in your organization. But the, the main thing is, is to start to build a relationship, you've got to figure out ways to get them involved. And as people get involved in your organization, they're more, much more likely to be uh, donors. And then I want to talk to you a little bit about solicitation and, and making uh, the ask. First of all, uh, you start out by setting up an appointment with the donor. Uh, you should take a two to three page written proposal with you. Uh, it, should be, it should be a personalized um, solicitation and it should be personalized to the donor. And you should take someone with you who is a, a key advocate for the cause within your organization and you should practice before you go and ask. Um, I love this cartoon, it says, Dr. Jekyll, how well do you know this Mr. Hyde who prepared your taxes? So, you know, sometimes you have to really really know your donors well before you go over and solicit them because unless they're ready to be solicited, unless they're ready to be asked for that particular cause, they're not going to give. Um, how do you determine the ability to give of a donor? Well, there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. First of all, you can look at their lifestyle. Uh, you can listen to conversations, listen to what people say. You can see if they own a business. Most most strategic donors, <coughs> excuse me, most strategic donors happen to be business owners. Um, you can listen to their peers. Uh, uh, you can find out if they're involved as a volunteer. Uh, you can find about them in the, in the um, local newspaper, and then you can see what they're doing in your annual giving program. Most of your, your major gift donors are going to come right out of your annual giving program. So how do you decide how much to ask for when you go ask someone for a major gift? A lot of different ways to determine that, but um, if you have a development committee, a, a subset of your board, and you're doing a little campaign, well, one of the things you can do is you can get your development committee to help make suggestions about how much different people in your community can give to the project. So um, you should know that 80 to 90% of the goal will come from about 10% of your donors. So if you're going to raise $10,000 from, you know, I don't know, from, from 100 people, most 90% of those dollars are going to come from about 
10 people. And you have to think that way strategically. And uh, so always ask, uh, this is another fundraising principle that you should know, is that you always ask for your large gifts first and your small gifts last. Do you know why that is? Pardon me? It creates momentum and uh, inspiration. In other words, if you ask someone for, say you're raising $100,000, and you ask someone for $2,500, that's not going to inspire someone to, to give $25,000. But if you said that someone else gave us $25,000 for this project, it's going to help elevate their expectation to give. In other words, they're going to say, well, if other people are giving large gifts like that, then I could give large gifts like that too. I should be supporting. So we all tend to, to first of all, give out a habit. Um, we don't always give what we're capable of giving. We tend to give just because we're used to that. That's why I hate fundraising programs that take place from the front of the church where you're badgering people every week in church to make a gift. Um, you know, you have some people in your congregation who are going to get the, the public call for a gift. And if they were visited, they might make a very large gift. They might make a million dollar gift. But if they're asked to make a gift from the pulpit and their normal gift is $10,000, they might think that they're being extraordinarily generous by giving you a $20,000 gift when they could have written you a check for a million dollars. Does that make sense? So, you know, if, if those of you who are raising money for capital purposes or have big projects you're raising money for, you know, start out by asking people who have the capacity to give large gifts, ask them to play a leadership role and to help set the pace and uh, go to them and, and make them a partner in what you're trying to accomplish and ask them if they will help provide the leadership to make this campaign a success. And, and uh, you're going to see a lot of good things that will flow out of that. It's not very often when you can start asking for the small gifts and you'll go up. It usually goes the other direction. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.